Hello out there, all you entrepreneurs and small business people. You are listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. The show has two goals, to share helpful information and resources, because I've made a lot of mistakes as an entrepreneur out there. My clients have made mistakes, my friends. So if I can help just a couple of you avoid one or two of those mistakes, then I've been a success. The second goal is to inspire. I found being an entrepreneur is confusing. It's often lonely. Sometimes you have no idea if you're on the right track or not. Every week I have guests on the show who are willing to share their advice and their stories to help with both of those goals. And my guest this week Joining me by phone is Chris Hearn. He is the founder and CEO of a company called Fountainhead. He's an entrepreneur by nature, he says, having founded two very successful small business lending companies in Florida. Now, Fountainhead describes itself as a national non-bank direct commercial lender specializing in helping owners of small to mid-sized businesses finance their growth and create wealth through conventional and small business loans. So with that, Chris, thanks so much for being with me today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Let's start by just talking a little more about what Fountainhead does. Sure. So we're uh, we're a small business lender. We're nationwide. So we've made loans in all 50 states and six territories. Our target audience is small to mid-sized business owner. Um, we do finance some startups. Most of our borrowers have been in business for a number of years, however. And, uh, you know, we compete against banks and credit unions who try to offer business loans. But we're, we're all over the country, even though we're based in Florida. But uh, we have a lot of fun. We're very passionate about financing entrepreneurs. We think of ourselves as entrepreneurs first and foremost. So that's a very different mindset than uh, than most of the folks we compete against. I would say that's true. Now, when you say small to midsize, I know lots of people define that differently. How do you define it? Right. Well, you're right. There's so many different uh, ways to to slice this. Um, We pretty much follow the Small Business Administration's the SBA's view on this. So typically our clients don't have more than 500 employees, typically don't have more than a hundred million in revenue, but you know, anything below that it's, it's all across the board. We financed brand new startups with zero employees or one employee. We financed companies that have hundreds of employees and, and do tens of millions of dollars in revenue and everything in between. I, I would say our typical, our average Borrowers probably in that five to ten million dollar range in gross revenue, and probably somewhere between ten and forty employees. Are you industry agnostic, or do most of your clients tend more towards manufacturing, or services, or software, or just really all over the board? Again, it's all over the board. We're pretty industry agnostic. I mean, there's certain industries that. We don't finance uh, just because they're not eligible per SBA guidelines. So things like, you know, pure investment plays, um, you know, residential financing, say for a multifamily apartment building, mm. um, you know, things like uh, the SBA has an interesting term called, you know, things that are of a sexually period nature. We don't, we don't finance those. <laughs> um, you know. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Anything that's uh, pyramid scheme related, as you would expect, we don't finance that. I mean, if I had to look at our top three or four 
industries, uh, we've always done a lot of the hospitality space. So a lot of um, bed and breakfasts and flagged limited service hotels. Um, we've always done a lot in the manufacturing and distribution space. So that could be uh, equipment related. It could be office warehouse related. These days, we do a lot in the e-commerce space, uh, particularly in terms of business acquisitions. That's a tends to be a very hot area of the market right now. We're, we're going through a, a demographic shift, as, as I'm sure you know, Doris, which is that there's a lot of business owners that are looking to sell their business. Uh, right. 56% of all business owners are actually baby boomers, and about 9,000 yep. baby boomers are retiring every day for the next nine years. So there's a lot of uh, transition that's going to happen, and a lot of business acquisitions of small businesses are financed with SBA loans. Interesting. So it's all over the board, though. I know that um, having had a couple of guests in the past on the show talking about business transition, I know it. I explained to my listeners, you may think this is counterintuitive because most of you are thinking about how do I get started? How do I hire more people? How do I grow my sales? But at some point, you will leave that business no matter how successful it is. So it's been tough for a lot of boomers, but it's, it's interesting to see it's finally happening. Well, it's, it's also, it's a strategy that a lot of small business owners don't think about. You know, we always think of large corporations that are doing mergers and acquisitions. And, you know, it even sounds fancier than a business acquisition. But oftentimes it's a good strategy to, you know, perhaps buy somebody who is somewhat of a competitor or maybe has a line of business that's tangential to what you do, um, particularly coming out of pandemic. There's a lot of businesses out there that are operating suboptimally, and, and uh, if someone is acquisitive, now is a good time to, to take a look at doing this. So, yeah. Um, but yes, you are correct. It's also a function of, you know, hey, the only thing that's certain is death and taxes, as they say. So eventually <laughs> one day, you're either going to stop your business or you're going to try to sell your business. So right. if you can sell it and get something for it, that's a whole lot better than just shutting the doors and throwing the keys away. Totally agree. So. When and why was Fountainhead founded? What unmet need did you see that you wanted to fill? Well, I um, I go back. Uh, I've been doing this for over 23 years, and I did start in a large corporation. Um, I actually started with GE Capital, who at the time was the largest non-bank direct small business lender in the country. And then eventually I went and joined Heller Financial, who was, which was based uh, in Chicago. Yeah. And, yes, yes. Uh, yep. And eventually, eventually GE bought Heller. And my running joke was that, you know, <laughs> they could have just uh, not capped my compensation and would have saved billions of dollars. Uh, but nevertheless, they did that. My, my blunt answer is I got frustrated with large corporations, you know, kind of the ebb and flow of the, of the credit policy in terms of small business lending. And what I mean by that is, in particular, a lot of larger companies and, and even highly regulated banks, they tend to get very concerned about concentration risk. And I, I understand why it exists. I understand um, how to mitigate that. But I also think sometimes it's very short-sighted. I think that if you have perfectly good businesses, um, you know, even if your your concentration is you don't want to you don't want to do more than whatever 10% of your portfolio is daycares and you get another daycare come in the door, if it's a really strong deal, I don't know why you would turn it away just because you're going to now be at you know 10.3% of your portfolio. So yeah. those were some of the sort of inside baseball that, I, that frustrated me a little bit. So I started my, my first non-bank 
small business lending company back in 2002 uh, as a result. And uh, I had actually left the small business lending arena for a couple of years and, and a buddy of mine, you know, over a beer at a bar, which just seems like where a lot of things start. Um, <laughs> he encouraged me to come back and I did, but I wanted to do it my way. So I started my own company in 2002. I actually sold it to a bank in 2010 and stuck around for almost four years, much to the chagrin of most of my friends who couldn't believe I stuck around as long as I did. And then I started Fountainhead in uh, February of 2015, about six months after I'd, I'd left that other institution. So it's been a good run. Um, we've been booming in terms of our growth. We will, uh, as of tomorrow, we'll be on the Inc. 500 list for the fourth year in a row. I'll find out our rank tomorrow. But it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's very gratifying what we do. And I, I just really enjoy helping to grow small businesses. That's, that's kind of in our DNA. And um, it's very exciting to do that and to play such an impactful role in, in uh, the lives of small business owners. Well, congrats on the Inc. 500. That's a terrific accomplishment, particularly multiple years, because I seem to recall the year-over-year growth that you need to experience to stay on that list is pretty daunting. So congrats. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. My my old company was on three years in a row as well. So this Tomorrow will be four years in a row for Fountainhead. So it's not, not too shabby, Chris. Not too bad. Not too shabby. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that I hadn't realized until I started doing a little research for the show, you know, I saw that Fountainhead is described as a non-bank lender. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. What does that really mean? I should know, but I didn't realize First of all, I I would love for you to to share with my listeners a little bit about what the difference is between a non-bank and a bank lender. But what I hadn't realized, and it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on this too, how much, like almost 50% of the small business loans that are out there, uh, credit is through non-bank loans. Um, at least with the article I saw, which I thought was astounding. So it's kind of like this whole segment that I'm not sure uh, people even necessarily are always even aware of. So comment on that a little bit. So in real simple terms, a non-bank lender such as ourselves is a non-depository institution. So instead of a bank who takes in deposits and then relends them out in the form of loans, we don't do that. We have our own source of capital. Uh, I've got a hedge fund partner. I've got an asset manager partner, and I've got my own capital in the business. Hence why I say I'm an entrepreneur who finances other entrepreneurs. <laughs> so that's really the key difference between us and a bank. There's only 14 institutions like us in the country that have this special license from the federal government, which enables us to do SBA loans. But it takes a long time to get approved for one of these. Uh, I'm pretty sure the SBA knows my conduct grade and, and fourth grade and, you know, under lawyer size and eighth grade and all these different things. But it took us about two and a half years to do this. And it's, it's based on your, you know, your experience in making SBA loans. It's, it's based on, you know, you're having the appropriate capitalization, um, having a good reputation in the industry, things of that nature. So we were crop proud of that. Um, we actually got approved three days before Christmas in uh, 2018, and then the government promptly shut down. <laughs> the state shut down wow. until uh, yeah, February of 2019. So we didn't announce that we had 
gotten into this particular loan, uh, SBA loan. We we had been we started doing a different SBA loan called the 504. This one is sort of the marquee loan program of the SBA, which is called the 7A, and we didn't announce it until late February of 2019, and uh, basically operated that business unit for just over a year, and then of course the pandemic hit, and we we pivoted the entire business into helping do uh, paycheck protection program loans, PPP. Ah. So, but that's the big difference between a non-bank and a bank. You're, you know, you asked me, what, are they, what do we do differently? Uh, I would say the biggest difference, Taurus, is that we are we're hyper-focused on just providing you know, the services that we do, which is really we have three loan products and that's it. Uh, I'm not ever trying to move somebody's depository accounts or lines of credit or payroll processing or insurance or all the other things that, that banks try to do to be vertically integrated. We don't do any of that. We just make SBA 7A, SBA 504, and then we have our own proprietary conventional product, and that's it. So we're highly specialized, um, which is important in such a specialized economy that we live in. Um, I'd like to think we've done just about every type of deal. We've seen just about every type of deal in our space. Uh, we, we actually totaled up our collective experience uh, across the, the entire team, and we have almost 400 years of SBA lending experience in our wow. company. So. Yeah, we were we were pretty proud of that, and it and it really what that means to a, a potential borrower is that, like I said, we just we've seen it all. We know how to handle just about every scenario. And the other big difference is we're we're much quicker than banks. We make decisions typically in 24 to 48 hours to approve loans. Um, most banks don't even call people back in 48 hours. So it's a it's a huge distinction of ours. And then we're we're also um, because. What we do fundamentally, Doris, is one of the biggest transactions, if not the biggest transaction in the lives of our small business borrowers. They need a really high level, a high degree, high level touch in terms of experience. Um, they're quite literally, we have to hold people's hands sometimes to get them through the process so they understand it. And, um, you know, that takes, again, that's a, that takes a special type of person to do that. And we like to think we're, we're really sincere when we do this. And again, that's, these are things that aren't, normally common in the financial services industry. You know, right, speed, right. Service, specialization, sincerity. I call them the four S's. It's just not, it's not done very often. And so I think it's something that really helps us stand out a lot. How do you find most of your customers? Is it just through web searches or do some of the SBA offices refer their clients to you or score mentors or how does that work? So it, it comes from a lot of different places. Um, you know, we've we've become experts at, at marketing online and offline over the years. Um, again, not something that's very common from a bank. No. Usually they're terrible at marketing. Um, so that's a big piece of our business. Um, we work with a lot of referral sources. Um, and once they've referred one transaction to us, they typically come back forever and send business to us all the time. We get a lot of repeat business. We also get referrals from our existing customers. Um, I do a lot of speaking, as you can imagine. Um, several other members of my team do a fair amount of speaking at small business trade shows and conferences and things like that. And then I appear in a lot of media too, whether it's radio shows like yours or podcasts or national media publications, et cetera. But it's, it's kind of a, it's just a big mix of all this. What makes us kind of unique is that we don't have, most everybody in our industry has what's called a commercial loan officer 
or a BDO, a business development officer. It's basically, they're they're outside salespeople, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't right. do that. I've, I've virtually never did that. I, I did that because everybody else did that in our industry when I first started out for about nine months. And I just said it, it didn't make any sense to do things that way. So from that point forward, we pulled everything in-house. Um, we have inside salespeople who take inbound leads and who actually make outbound calls to referral sources. And that's how we operate. We, I just think there's, there's too many examples of a, you know, a, high, a well-paid um, salesperson who you know, just kind of half-asses it, doesn't do much <laughs> throughout the day. And, and oftentimes, you're just throwing money down the drain. So I'd rather, I'd rather have people work together closer, um, you know, not, not be beholden to some prima donna salesperson. And it's, it's obviously worked out extremely well for us. It's not something that would have happened 30 plus years ago in this industry. Um, you know, bankers change happens very slowly in the financial services industry and in the banking industry in specific. And, you know, but even to this day, I mean, most community bankers feel like they've got to go out, you know, do the windshield tr- time, drive out, see a prospect, uh, get the dog and pony show, walking around, you know, have them tell them all about the business and whatnot. And, you know, it just, it just wastes a lot of time. I, I, we do a lot of that, but we do it over, over the phone and by email. And if you're competent and can demonstrate that, you can easily demonstrate it over the phone and the email. Um, and frankly, today's business owners don't have a lot of time to waste. No. And so no, they don't. We, we live in this, yeah, I mean, and you can order dog food and get it the next day, if not later that day. Uh, right. People kind of expect that about their financial services approvals. When they when they apply for financing, they expect to get answers fairly quickly. So, um, you know, that's something that we've adapted toward. And I don't think there's that many out there in banking that have very effectively. So it's, it's a huge difference. <laughs> no, I, I would agree with you, Chris. Talk a little bit about the two SBA loans, the 504 and Mm -hmm. the 7A. I'm not sure everybody is even aware of these programs and what some of the advantages are. So talk about both of those a little bit. Well, you know, the problem with both of them is that they they suffer from terribly named government, you know, government names like- Yeah, that's catchy, 504 and 7A. Those are- Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll go with that, but most people don't have a clue what any of that means. So I will explain it really simply, which is seven A's. That is the marquee program of the SBA. That program uh, does about last year, last fiscal year, it did about $23 billion in financing. Well, and then the other program, the 504, is sort of the second largest. It did about seven and a half billion. So in total, a little over 30 billion between these two programs. But what's really interesting is I've often said this is the most efficient government agency. And what I mean by that is is the output that they have, $30 billion, is done by less than a thousand people at the agency under a billion dollars in budget. I mean, and and the economic impact of that 30 billion is is substantial. I've often said SBA punches above their weight compared to all other federal agencies. And and this is the reason for it. And frankly, we saw this the last couple of years during the pandemic with with PPP. PPP, there was almost $800 billion of those loans. Yeah, and SBA moved fast on that. There's no question. People don't, you know, there's been a lot in the media, oh, there was this abuse and that abuse. And yet 
right. know, if if they had sat on things, I mean, for a government agency, it was insane how fast they turned things around. <laughs> well, I can tell you lots of stories how insane the last couple of years have been doors. But yeah, it's uh, it, it was remarkable. They really had a big spotlight on them. And for the most part, I would say they did a tremendous job. Uh, they worked harder than they ever expected to have worked being in government service. But we saved a lot of businesses. And, yep. and collectively between the SBA and their private sector lenders like us, you know, we helped stabilize the economy. And, and if, uh, if that hadn't been the case, I, I really fear what, what might have occurred. But these programs, back to, back to the two loans, just real quick, the 7A is the most versatile of the SBA loan products, and frankly, of any business loan for that matter. Uh, 7As can be used for business acquisitions. 7As can be used for partner buyouts. 7As can be used for working capital, uh, business debt refinance, uh, acquiring, refinancing, renovating, or constructing owner-occupied or owner-operated commercial real estate. It can be used for equipment purchases or refinances. It can be used for franchising, you know, FF&E, franchise fees, all these different things. So it's really, really versatile. Just about anything that a business might need can probably be done with an SBA 7A loan. The SBA 504, very simply, is, is a bit more limited, and it is only used in cases of acquiring, refinancing, renovating, or constructing owner-occupied, owner-operated commercial real estate, or heavy equipment, and that's it. Those are the only two things that an SBA 504 can be used for. So anything working capital related is going to push you in the direction of a 7A, anything business acquisition related, partner buyout related, it's going to push you towards a 7A. So that's those are really the two big distinctions. And why would small businesses want an SBA loan as opposed to a conventional loan to value loan? Well, typically the biggest the biggest reason is the down payment. That's so really a few things. It's down payment, it's loan terms, and it's monthly payment. And what I mean by that is an ordinary conventional bank loan, let's say for commercial real estate, for instance, most banks are going to require 20 to 30% as a down payment. With an SBA loan, it's almost always 10% as your down payment. So that makes a huge difference, particularly coming through the pandemic. People understand how precious their capital is these days, and they want to preserve it as much as they can. So that's to me, that's one of the big distinguishing features of why more and more business owners are seeking out SBA loans versus just ordinary conventional bank loans. The other one that comes up is the term, the repayment term. And typically it's the amortization. Oftentimes, if you go to your community bank, not only will they ask for 20 to 30% as your down payment, but you might only have 15 or 20 years of an amortization to repay that loan. And frankly, a lot of times they'll put in place a much shorter term where there'll be a balloon payment after, let's say, three years or five years, maybe seven or 10 years. And then you'll, you'll owe all the principal that's outstanding at that time, either to be paid off in cash or to refinance it. So that's another big distinguishing feature. On the SBA side, commercial real estate is always financed at a 25-year amortization. Typically, you have, um, depending on if it's a 504 or a 7A, you might have the worst case scenario, you would have a 10-year term. So that's pretty lengthy. And oftentimes, if for a 7A, if it's for non-commercial real estate related proceeds, it's almost always a fully amortizing 10-year term. So that also makes a big difference compared to what an ordinary bank might offer, which is going to be much, much shorter. 
And both of those things contribute to much lower monthly payments, which means that the cash flow of the business can stay as high as, as possible, which is what you want, particularly if you're growing or even if you're heading into you know difficult uh, economic times, you want to have as much free cash flow as possible. So you these bet. are some of the ways that you can do it. Yep, yep. you bet. Those are the big three. Yep. Loan covenants also are not usually a common feature of SBA loans. They are very, very common for ordinary conventional bank loans. And that sounds like a technicality, like nobody should really care. But the problem is, again, when you go into slower economic times or even recessionary economic times, that's oftentimes when the banking community tends to tighten up quite a bit. And one of the ways that they do that is is utilizing some of the loan covenants as part of their as part of their loan agreements. So they may not like your industry anymore, for instance. And yeah. when your loan comes up for a renewal, they say, hey, you got 60 days to pay us off. Get, we want you out of the portfolio. And it could be no for no reason from that business owner, but they just happen to be in the same industry where maybe the bank took a loss with a different borrower. So yeah. it's little things like that. If a business gets, uh, gets in difficult economic times, oftentimes their, their ratios that the banks are watching tend to get pressured. And again, you, you have what are called um, non-monetary defaults. And again, this is, this isn't to scare anybody, but this oftentimes happens when we find ourselves in a recession or a slow growth timeframe that the banks want to, um, they're so risk averse, they want to kick perfectly decent businesses out of the portfolio who may be just, you know, going through a, a short-term problem. That's oftentimes not a good enough excuse for, for a lot of these folks. So SBA by comparison doesn't have these issues. So long as you make your SBA payment, you should be good to go. Well, I want to ask a few more questions, in fact, sure. about that you mentioned about credit tightening and potential recession. I don't know. It depends on who you ask. Everything, you know, I see in the news, it's full of credit being tightened for small, especially for small businesses and startups. Is that something you're seeing? Is Does that affect your lending operations? Does it affect SBA loans? And if so, how? I am starting to see it. You're correct, Doris, which is that um, there's dozens and dozens of arguments for or against what we're in a recession right now, whether it's on the, you know, the technical definition or various other metrics that people can look at. And frankly, that's for, that's for academics to decide eventually. But um, people the, in finance are getting nervous in places that, that, that yes, I think it's safe to say that's that. That's for sure. And it's a bit wacky because, you know, we were not expecting the, the big jobs report that we got last Friday, which was double what anybody expected. I mean, we are near historical lows in terms of the unemployment rate, yet we're also near historical lows in terms of the, the consumer confidence rate. I mean, there's just there's just a lot of things that are sort of contradicting. But very high and inflation, so, which is interesting, right? And exactly. And high inflation. That probably is weighing most heavily on the consumer's mind because they're seeing it when they go to the gas pump or they're seeing it when they go to the grocery store. And they're also seeing it in the stock market, which is which had been tanking until, I guess, last month, and it seems to have come back a bit. But So there's just all these conflicting, this conflicting information out there. But what nobody can really deny is the fact that the economy is slowing down. And, that's, and that is on purpose. That is what occurs when you have 
inflation booming like it has been. It also occurs when the Federal Reserve tries to tame inflation and starts to hike their interest rates. So um, the whole point is to slow this stuff down. But you've also had booming employment. And um, so I suspect we're going to be, you know, continuing to see rate hikes the better part of the remainder of this year. I think inflation may have already peaked. I don't know. I, I don't have a, any better of a crystal ball than anybody else. But you know, it does make an impact on small businesses because it makes an impact insofar as um, the prices, let's say for inventory, for instance, uh, which often results in the small business owner having to increase their prices yeah. uh, in order to try to remain, you know, continue the same profit margin, for instance. It often means that they've got to they've got to pay more in terms of their wages the employees they've got or to recruit new employees. So all these things have a slowing effect on the economy. And it also has the effect of ordinary conventional business lending to slow down. And um, again, banks are notoriously risk averse. And in slower economic times, they'd rather go to the sidelines and wait things out. And so, and also, of all just, this, just to interject, I mean, there's still the long shadow of 2007 and 8, where there was a sense that certain that lending that was out there was too aggressive. And so now there's probably a, a recoil. Maybe the pendulum has sprung back the other way a little bit, maybe, right? Yeah, there, yeah, there's some of that for sure. Um, but what's interesting about all this is, that in times like this, this is where the SBA and their participating lenders really shine. It's, it's a bit counter-cyclical, I guess, is my point. You know, businesses still need financing in good economic times or bad economic times, but you've sort of, you know, whittled down the, the playing field quite a bit in poor economic times. There's not as many options for the business owner. So SBA becomes a pretty significant, dramatic option for business owners in, in times like these, um, because most SBA lenders are, are continuing to lend, even in tougher economic times, where uh, you know their contemporaries on the conventional side typically aren't. So interesting. It's, so, it's kind so of an are you dynamic? Yeah. Yeah. Are you seeing an uptick then in interest and in applications for SBA loans? We we have seen an uptick over the last about six weeks or so. Yeah. Which is good. I mean, you know, I, we, we want more business. We want to help more people. So for us, it's it's terrific. But, you know, I still don't know what's quite going to happen for the overall economy going forward. So we'll see. Does that mean that the SBA sets the qualification for the loans? Or is that something each individual lender does? And how does that affect how you operate? Well, SBA does have minimum standards. But sort of the dirty little secret in ordinary conventional banking is inevitably the bankers overlay their own internal credit policy and parameters on top of the SBAs. And so where that shows itself is you have situations where a borrower goes to their community bank who maybe doesn't do a lot of SBA. And for some reason, they get turned down at the community bank, but then they go to a different SBA lender and they get approved. Well, the funny thing is, because SBA is just this faceless bureaucracy, it's really easy for bankers to throw SBA under the bus. And so inevitably, this is what happens. And so the community bank says, well, we can't do your loan because SBA won't let us. We have to decline it, blah, blah, blah. Then they go down the street to another SBA lender, and lo and behold, they can do the loan. 
So it, it's, it can be confusing. It uh, unfortunately creates a lot of myths and misperceptions out there about SBA lending. But in general, Doris, what an SBA applicant has to show is a debt service coverage ratio, which I'll explain in a second, of 1.15 times historically or on a projected basis going forward. And so what that means is, in simple terms, the business, the operating company has to throw off a dollar fifteen for every dollar of annual debt payment that they have. That's a simple layman's way to explain it. And this is very common analysis that's done in uh, business banking. Typically, again, back to you know tightening economic times, most banks probably have a minimum debt service coverage ratio of at this point, probably you know one three five or one four times coverage maybe even for the last two years combined. And so you can see business owners oftentimes will be will fall just shy of that, but that's when they might be much more, you know, of a candidate for an SBA loan. Um, you also have a situation where remember I said a one point one five times coverage historically or projected. Most well, uh, yeah, what's proje- yeah. projection loans. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of what occurred to me right away was projected. Mm-hmm. Well how, yeah. I mean, what does that mean, really? I mean, if you've been in business for 10 years, you get a little better idea. But even then, you know, businesses have ups right. and downs and hiccups. If you're a startup, That's wow, right. that could mean, I mean, I've listened to a lot of pitches from startup entrepreneurs and 1.5 is just so minimal compared to what most of them will tell you, you you'll get. So I don't know what projected really means. Well, it's, it's, you know, projected in the SBA world means the borrower's got to have a business plan with pretty detailed assumptions, and we as the lender are going to go through those assumptions and make sure we believe them, and regardless, we'll probably still discount them some. You know, and this is, this is where business lending, particularly small business lending, becomes a little bit of art and a little bit of science. It's not, it's not all science. So it makes it a little bit different than residential lending, for instance, which they've made that about as cookie cutter as it gets. But that's not necessarily how SBA lending is. Right. What are some of the most common mistakes you see small businesses make, either in applying for a loan or in trying to pay off a loan that they're maybe struggling with? Well, I, I would say the most common mistake I see is, frankly, they're just not very well organized. They, they don't know where the documentation is that any lender is going to ask for. Um, they might know where some of it is, but they don't know where all of it is. <laughs> and so that oftentimes delays not only the approval or the commitment letter, but even delays the closing, unfortunately. So that's that's a very common thing. I still occasionally see balance sheets that don't balance. That's always kind of fun. I'm saying that facetiously. It's like checkbooks that don't balance. It's close, right? Yeah, exactly. Or, um, you know, I see business plans sometimes that have these just extraordinary growth rates. And, you know, we often scratch our head and go, yeah, you know, unfortunately, projections are only as good as the people making them. We have to discount that a lot. Yeah. Entrepreneurs that that can confuse the projections for the lender with projections that they think they need to make for a pitch competition or something. I don't know. Right. (laughs) Right. Or their hopes and dreams that, you know, the unicorn dreams or something. (laughs) Yeah. They have to be a little more 
a little more reasonable and down to earth. It's the same with profitability. You know, I, I've been telling business owners this for over two decades. The year prior to when you want to have a business event, and I when I say event, I'm, I'm putting air quotes around it because it typically means either getting financing or selling the business, right? Well, that's the year you want to make sure you're showing all the profits that your business makes. You know, it's not the year to screw around with stuff and try to hide profits because you don't like to pay Uncle Sam taxes. Nobody likes to pay taxes, but if you want to have a business event, you want to be able to be as transparent and put your best foot forward that you can. And, and yet I still see people say, well, you know, uh, every year I play these games and I said, yeah, that's great. But the problem is you don't cash flow on paper. So right. it's not going to work. So that's, those are some of the mistakes I see paying off the loan. I don't know that I necessarily see mistakes paying off the loan per se, although, you know, just because a business owner says they want to pay off a loan by a certain date, um, invariably I've seen many times that that date gets pushed. And so the payoff letter, you know, has to get updated again, but you know, it's, it's mostly in applying for the loan that I think there's a lot of mistakes that are made. And, and, and I think business owners, they have to listen to their lenders a little bit better. You know, we oftentimes will talk to our prospective borrowers about, and this is very early in the stage. We say, this is what our best borrowers do. This is what our best customers do. They do the following things. And we go through it with them and explain that, you know, we need them to be organized. We need them to start assembling certain documents. We're going to give them a checklist ahead of time to get working on. Just because they get us some information doesn't mean it's necessarily done. There's going to be some more homework in order all to keep the deal on track and to hopefully hit their target closing date. But it takes cooperation on both sides. And, you know, we joke about it all the time. As soon as we issue a commitment letter, somebody goes on a two or three week vacation out of the country. It's like, uh-huh. come on, guys. We're <laughs> trying to we're trying to get to the closing table for you to help your business. And you went and went on this this big trip because I guess we we lowered their anxiety about whether they would be approved or not. But again, it's not done until we until we cross the finish line and they actually get the funds that they need to yeah. do what they want the loan for. Well, you you mentioned that you end up doing a lot of handholding. Talk about some of the kinds of issues that arise. Well, I mean, it's all over the board again. I mean, it can be, you know, ridiculously inflated business plan projections and assumptions. It's kind of a running joke we have around the office that when we get a personal financial statement, everybody thinks their business is worth at least a million dollars. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah if not, you know, a multiple of that. And, you know, we know how to read income statements and balance sheets and we know what business valuations go for. And we oftentimes scratch our head and go, I don't know how this person thinks the business is worth a million dollars. They, you know, they had $200,000 last year in gross revenue, for instance, and made 20 grand net profit. But invariably I see that a lot. So we've got to sort of coach them into being a little more um, reasonable We oftentimes will get people that are truly shocked by what's on their credit report because they haven't been managing that correctly. And oftentimes the credit bureaus get things incorrect or don't remove things that should have been removed and uh, oftentimes make mistakes. And and just so we do some handholding in terms of trying to work them through that. You know, we have to do some handholding in terms of the SBA forms themselves. A lot of times business owners uh, either don't understand some of the questions or some of the some of the documentation that's necessary. Uh, sometimes 
they're, they're not as honest as perhaps they should be on various threshold eligibility questions. We, um, we, we hate it when we've spent a bunch of time on a transaction only to find out later on that the borrower uh, had a recent bankruptcy or um, had a recent criminal conviction that they didn't disclose or, you know, just little things like that. I mean, I mean, we let, we, we don't, we can work with things to some extent so long as we know what they are. But when people try to hold back and we find it out later in the process, it's very frustrating for us. And sometimes we have to kill deals very late in the game because somebody didn't disclose this yeah. big judgment that they have against them or this, right. this big lien that we can't take care of. So, I mean, I, I've seen, like I said, I've seen just about every story well, there is without that. I'm sure you have some stories that <laughs> oh, yes. would be fodder for more than a, a few drinks at the airport bar, you know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So what advice would you give to small businesses in working with their lenders in general? What are the things they should think about doing in order to have a ongoing great relationship with their lender? Well, I think it starts with making sure their lender knows what they're talking about. And so you can do a little bit of due diligence on their lender. You'd never want to be someone's guinea pig, you know, and and just because a bank or a credit union can make an SBA loan, they're allowed to, their grandfathered in, doesn't mean they have made one recently. And this is really a niche area of business finance that you really need to be doing this daily to have some reasonable level of, of competence. So that would be the first thing I would say. And by the way, there is pre-pandemic, there was about 11,000 financial institutions who could make an SBA loan. Only about 1,700 actually had made one in the preceding 12 months. Oh my so goodness. It's a, it's a small, it's, yeah, it's a really small world out there in this space. And even during the pandemic, during PPP, yes, about 5,500 of those 11,000, so roughly half, actually made a PPP loan. But as I said, the, the vast majority of them are not going to do another SBA loan, haven't done another SBA loan for a variety of reasons. So specialization is key. They need to ask the question. You know, how frequently do you make SBA loans? Are you in the top 100 most active SBA lenders in the country, for instance? We are. Um, are you a preferred lending partner of SBA? That also helps a lot because that's a lender who's actually been given designated underwriting authority. So it means they make their own credit decisions. And they have to live with them, of course, with SBA. But again, only about 10% of the SBA participating lenders actually are PLP lenders. Again, Fountainhead is, but you got to really be careful uh, because even if your cousin works at the community bank and you want to try and give him business, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be treated as well as you can be treated uh, with someone who specializes in it. So I, I think that's, if I had to leave you know, a final message for anybody who's considering business lending, make sure you're dealing with an appropriate lender for what your, what your request is. If you want an SBA loan, deal with somebody who does SBA loans for a living. Don't deal with one of the big bank household names, um, you know, because you've seen their commercial on TV and yet they maybe don't do SBA lending and don't, <laughs> don't deal with a bank just because your cousin or your brother-in-law works there. You know, right. You work need, with people who do this for a living. You need yeah. brain surgery. Go to a brain specialist. Don't. That's right. Hey, my cousin is a surgeon. He, he's always wanted to do brain surgery, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But he works at the veterinarian's office. So yeah. yeah probably well, not the guy you want to do brain surgery. Um, exactly. Yeah. Well, last question before I let you go, Chris. 
How can mm-hmm. people find out more about Fountainhead if they're interested in getting a loan through you or just for whatever reason, generally more interested in learning more? Sure. They can um, visit our website, which is Fountainhead, F-O-U-N-T-A-I-N-H-E-A-D-C-C.com, FountainheadCC.com. Um, we're on all the social media channels. They can follow us and, and uh, read all of our posts and stuff on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Actually, our YouTube channel is is pretty um, voluminous. We've got a few hundred videos, and a lot of them are sort of how-to videos, explanatory videos. So that would be a great place for them to visit. Um, just those are the ways to, to take a look at what we're out there. Um, our general inbox is info, I-N-F-O at fountainheadcc.com if they want to reach out to us directly. So those are the best ways to get a hold of us. Fantastic. Chris, thanks so much for joining me this week. It was really a delight having you and really useful and helpful to learn more about SBA loans. So I hope my listeners, uh, I hope that will benefit some of them. So thanks again for, for your time and for appearing on the show. My pleasure, Doris. Thank you for having me. So in the few minutes we have left, I want to talk about a topic that I've been thinking about a lot lately and have heard other entrepreneurs talk about, and that is focus. So you have to think like a startup in order to be a successful startup. How do you think like a startup, though? What are the mental markers for success? To win the game of building a startup, you have to focus on the most important things. So what areas, though, you ask? Well, through my own experience, as well as uh, successes and failures of my own and friends, and a tip of the hat to an article by Neil Patel, co-founder of a company called The Crazy Egg that appeared in Inc. Magazine, along with Michael Gerber, who's the author of the seminal business book, The E-Myth Revisited, I offer four areas where I think entrepreneurs need to really focus their attention or not focus their attention. The first one is, and if you've read The E-Myth, you know this, focus on working on the business, not in the business. Too many of us entrepreneurs and small business people allow ourselves to get caught up in the day-to-day busy work of the business. A recent survey showed that on average, we spend 40% of our day on that busy work. It's the stuff that Stephen Covey calls urgent but not important. And it takes time away from key strategic activities that are needed to keep our business focused on overall direction and strategic moves. So what are some of these busy work things? I think most of us have a pretty good idea, but it's administrative tasks, things like payroll, accounting, putting together slide decks, paperwork of all different kinds, Wayne Rivers nails it in his article in the Wall Street Journal called Four Ways Entrepreneurs Waste Their Time. Here's what he wrote. If entrepreneurs devoted a few more hours each week to business development, long-term business planning, communicating their vision and values with their teams and their stakeholders, rigorously evaluating their talent and getting super competent new hires 
on board and improving quality, they'd see the dividends and the impact immediately. So what are those kinds of things that we ought to be spending more time on that are truly important but not urgent? Things like planning, prep time, clarifying our values, researching, visioning, listening to customers, taking time for ourselves, either exercising or other forms of recreation, hobbies, journaling, and relationship building. So why do we do so many of these busy work things and conveniently avoid the more strategic activities? I think it's a few reasons. I'd be interested in your thoughts. The urgent busy work gives us a sense of immediate accomplishment. They're short, easy tasks to check off our list and other people around us obviously need us. It must be important. The strategic stuff though is hard. There's no end to it and it doesn't really feel important. Nobody's on our case to make sure this piece gets done. The, the urgent stuff, at least for some of us, also feeds, I think, our ego at times. It validates we're needed and wanted. The business can't run without us. And yet, we need that business to largely run, at least day to day, without us in order to grow. Yeah, you heard me right. The business needs to be able to run without us in order to grow. And I think if you think about it that way, it may change how you spend some of your time. Anyway, I would recommend mapping out how you spend your days. Journal it. Then really push yourself to find ways to off-source, off, offload, compress those urgent but not important things. And then the hard part, apply a lot of discipline to use the time you freed up to focus on that strategic stuff. The second place that I think needs more focus is uh, focus on customers and selling your products and or services and not on pitching for funding. Alexander Mittal, who's the CEO of the Funders Club, says he sees entrepreneurs doing all this time, all the time. Many first-time entrepreneurs obsess about fundraising and it let it take priority over what actually matters, building products and talking to customers. There is something more important than fundraising. It's selling your product. Investors are going to want to see someone who's good at selling a product, not selling a business idea. Put the horse first, not the cart. Now, many entrepreneurs have been burned by chasing money to the detriment of their business. Don't let this process consume you. Your business is your customers, not your investors. Yes, 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 you might say, but I need money. Otherwise, I'll have to stop this business or go get a McJob. Well, allocate some time to fundraising, but never, never let it get in the way of building and selling your products. The third way to focus is doing things that empower you, not discourage you. When you feel empowered, you are more likely to be successful. 
A study from the Quarterly Journal of Economics explained that the confidence in one's abilities generally enhances motivation. So in order to experience that confidence, you have to do the stuff you're good at. So find ways to outsource, offload, or stop doing the things that you hate doing that demotivate you, that suck your energy and discourage you. And the final area of focus is listen to customers, not just critics. So to grow your business, you need to listen to the right stuff. Most people will tell you, advisors at least, will say, listen to your customers. But not many advisors will tell you to plug your ears when the critics come to provide their input. Listening to everybody's opinions or advice can be absolutely debilitating. And you'll hear some of my past guests talk about just exactly that. The quickest way to do something stupid for your business is to take the advice of someone who doesn't know anything about your business. There does exist a group of people who understand your business in the most important way. They know a side of your business you will never even fully understand yourself. And this group of people is your customers. So listen to them and ignore most of the rest of the advice you get. So in summary, there are millions of things to do in a startup or small business that's trying to get off the ground. But most of those tasks are wastes of time. The true essential things to focus on are building your business, not busy work. Focus on selling your product, not fundraising. Focus on doing things that empower you, not discourage you or demotivate you. And focus on listening to your customers, not just your critics. Now, before I leave you a little plug, be sure to check out my new dedicated YouTube channel called the Savvy Entrepreneur Radio Show. There you can download recent past episodes of the show. You can listen to past shows and like them and even comment on them. Follow my channel so you'll be sure to catch future shows as they're posted. I promise you will find lots of helpful free tips from my many amazing guests, as well as be inspired by their journeys, which they share from the heart. Plus, you'll be supporting the work of the Savvy Entrepreneur and the work of lots of your fellow entrepreneurs and all the great things that they are doing. Maybe one of those days you will be a featured guest on the show. My door is always open for comments, questions, and suggestions or you just want to shoot the breeze, email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at thesavvyentrepreneur.org. I'd love to hear from you. Now, be sure to join me again next week for another great guest. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.